I know that's big news. And I know that the world is on fire. And I know there's great reasons for sobriety in all things. There's also great reasons for gratitude. And I wonder if we might just condense all of those concerns and all of those reasons for joy, even in the midst of challenge, that we might just pray the prayer he taught us to pray, to collect ourselves and remind ourselves of his goodness and to acknowledge our own frailty. So would you pray with me now the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A place to grow, a place to grow, at Camp Oka, Waka, Oka, Waka, hey ho! Woo! We made it. 12 miles, great job, y'all. I think we might have set a Camp Oka, Waka record. Okay, now we just need to set up the tents and get dinner cooking. But I'm tired. Can't we just take a break for a while? I know you're tired, I know, but nature doesn't wait for us. We need to set up camp, and we need water. I saw a blue blaze on that trail over there. I'm going to go fill up the dromedary for us. You guys all set up the tents in the stove. Got it? Got it? Okay. Are you getting any bars? I've got, like, two. Wait, don't even text your back yet. Just post an Insta of you with the bear photoshopped in the background with the hashtag, I am a proud survivor. She will flip. Oh my gosh, Devin said he wants to FaceTime me before we go to bed under the stars. Ooh. Ooh, how romantic, under the stars. I know, but I'm like so sweaty and gross. Did you bring your makeup? Of course, yeah. Um, just come help me get this pine sap off my hand. Ladies. I'm sorry, we're on it, we're on it. What have you been doing? Have you been asleep? Can you not set up camp for even five minutes while I'm gone? Well, sorry, really. And what exactly are you doing putting on makeup at 5,000 feet after our hike? Her boyfriend wants to talk to her under the stars. It's romantic. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go get another load of water for tomorrow morning. Tell your boyfriend Tom Holland to call you tomorrow, okay? You guys all set up camp. And please get off your phones. We're here to enjoy nature, remember? Dear God, I pray that this storm would go away. Anything is possible with you. But if you don't send these dark clouds away, Lord God, I pray that you would help me to guide these campers, help us to be ready to teach them and to guide them, not only for this world, but for the much harsher world that waits for us when we get back. Oh my gosh, he's calling me right now. I'm not done, just give me another minute. Oh, connection lost. I've only got one bar. I got into Instagram, by the way, if you want to do my idea. It's, like, super slow, but wait. Sarah Anderson went with her team to the Bahamas on vacation without her parents? How'd you get to do that? Wait, he's calling me again. 
Not now, lovebirds. Are you still not setting up camp? Can you not see? Can you not hear? A storm is coming any minute now. I didn't want to scare you before, but we have got to set up camp fast. And we have got to get warm food while we can. Everything on your phone can wait. It'll always be there buzzing. But the storm is at hand now, and we have to deal with it now, whether I like it or not. And nothing on your phone is going to stop it. So everybody up. Everybody up. Get the tent poles. Let's get moving. You can see it, right? That, that would happen, right? Um, they're on their way somewhere, and the one who's out in front kind of knows what's coming and tries their best to try to engender a little urgency in everybody, and what does everybody else do? They kind of flake out. They go back to their own worlds. They don't have a real sense of what's headed their way, and so they kind of do just what comes naturally. That moment is an analogy for where we're going today in the passage that we're going to look at in Mark's gospel. A moment in which Jesus is out in front trying to be a voice for what's coming and everybody who's closest to him, who's been following him, which is the question we've been asking ourselves throughout this series, what does it mean to follow him? They, they don't get it. They are at a distance. They're at a remove from what's reality. And he has to awaken them. Over the last two years, there's been a lot that's been done to us. Stuff that was out of our control, circumstances that we never could have seen coming, and things were done to us. And perhaps the one constituency to whom that is most true is children. But there are a lot of things in the last two years of what's happened that really has exposed what was already inside of us. I've used the metaphor before of like a lake with silt at the bottom. When a storm comes in, everything that was at the bottom that nobody really was aware of gets churned up, and now we kind of see it for what it is. The last two years have kind of revealed something that was inside of us already. In the moment that we're going to listen to Jesus that has a great analogy for what we just saw in the sketch, the storm comes, and you will see what was in him but you will also see what was in those who followed him. And I think that this passage is more than just trying to retell the moment. I think it's asking us to do something, to, to behold something, to beware something, and then to figure out what is the relationship between bewaring, being wary and beholding. That's what we're going to do. Behold, beware, and then figure out how being wary and beholding go together. We're on his night in Gethsemane, and Rebecca's going to read us the passage, and we're in Mark chapter 14. I wonder if you might stand to hear. Our central text this morning can be found in Mark chapter 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, 
and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. We know Jesus suffered. And we know that the gospel writers expend a lot of attention just in terms of proportion in all the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know that he did, but we get the sense that the gospel writers also wanted to account for how he suffered. And that to you might sound like, why? Don't be dramatic. That's kind of nasty. Why, why, why talk about how he suffered? It's the why question. Why did he suffer? We want to get into that. If you were with us last week, what happens right before this moment, Jesus has gathered his disciples for a meal. He's then done the mic drop saying that one of them will betray him. And then he's shown them what it means to partake of his body and his blood. They've sung, and now they're in a place called Gethsemane, a garden. Things in the Bible seem to begin and conclude in a garden. Why has he gone there? He's gone to pray. And we might ask ourselves, why? There's nothing about his future that he's unclear about. He doesn't need any more instructions about what he has to do next. He knows what's coming. Why has he gone to pray? He's come to seek his father's presence for some sort of assurance, reassurance in that moment. That's his first impulse. That's his default posture. And, and before I any go any further in this passage, I might just do a little sidebar here and say, or ask, is that our first instinct when the heat gets turned up? Some of us will drink when that happens. Some of us will eat. A lot of us will, will turn to our digital pacifiers and I don't reference any of those to shame anyone whose first instinct is to do that when the pressure is turned up. It is more to kind of ask ourselves and wonder, why do we think that will help? To wonder, why have we concluded that prayer won't help? When for Jesus, it would seem to be his first instinct. On that night, he has sought to find 
assistance of a certain way. And what we see in this passage is Jesus being entirely transparent. Transparent with his words. Sit here and pray, he says to them. He goes off to pray, and we understand that because when it comes to prayer, that is some of the most intimate language that we can ever express. And so we understand his desire for solitude. And yet when he also says to his little inner circle, Peter, James, and John, hey, sit here. He also reflects this idea that you may want to be, have a certain solitude, but you don't want to be isolated. You want people around. You want, you want to know of a presence that's there. And he is fully transparent in his words. Sit here and pray. But he is also transparent with his body. He tells them to sit here, and then he goes on a little bit further, and it says he falls to the ground, to his knees, and begins to weep and begin to pray. And I think what Mark is doing for us, what Mark is asking you and I to do here in this first idea, is to behold something. We are here to behold the heart of Jesus. It goes by so fast, and, and you and I don't know what it means to behold, and we'll get to that later in the sermon, but the first thing that I think this text is asking us to do is to behold the heart of Jesus, and I, I mean that in two ways. To behold it in the sense of trying to grapple with what he is facing in that moment. To the extent that we understand what he is doing for our benefit. And I just want to focus on the prayer that he utters there, to consider his heart. Abba, Father, with you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. I'll just sit there for a minute. Why is Jesus praying again? What, what, what motivates him? What kind of reassurance is he out to? What, what is he facing? Look, the, the obvious thing is he knows he's about to experience physical pain. Jesus is not a stoic. He knows what's coming. He's not detached from what he will experience. Pain is as much a function that afflicts the mind as it is that afflicts the nerves. So you can understand why he would be at his knees, on his knees, in prayer for the pain that he will face. But we can also reasonably speculate that Jesus is gone to prayer because of what he's about to experience in death. The very idea of having everything that you have stolen from you through murder, through a state-sponsored execution, to the cheering of many, to have your last breath beaten from you, all that it requires to remove life from someone, it will be exerted upon him. Seven years ago this month, my father died. And I remember in the moment for my tears for him. But I also remember in the moment my tears for myself. Tears for my wife. Tears for my children who will all follow in the same lot as he did at some point. The kind of thought that makes you want to grab for something to stabilize you. Surely he goes to his knees because he knows what he's about to experience in the way of death. But, but there are two other things that he's about to experience. This thing about the cup, what's that about? It's kind of Old Testament code. 
It's the idea of judgment, the judgment of God. In Isaiah 51, Israel, from the prophet's mouth, is guilty of high-handed habitual sin. And it says through Isaiah's words that Israel has been made to drink the cup of God's disciplinary anger. And they are like men staggering at what they have consumed as a function of judgment. And that God has at some point intervened in their life and taken the cup from them, taken it upon himself that they might walk again as real people. The cup is of judgment. The Lord Jesus, the Son of the Father, has only known from eternity undiminished, unmitigated, uninterrupted communion with his Father. And now, in this moment, he will learn to experience what it means to experience God's judgment for sin, even though he was an innocent person. Yeah, that would send me to my knees too. And it does for him. And you and I, even as we prayed the prayer that Jesus prayed, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, you and I know what it means to believe in and to rest in and to call for the forgiveness of God. And surely Jesus has given us reasons to think that that is the focal point of his effort. Mark chapter 2, to the invalid, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. In Mark chapter 10, he says, I have become a ransom for many. I've come not to be served, but to serve. So we know he has come to exert his authority for the sake of our forgiveness, but we must also reckon with the idea that Jesus has come for an effort that is on a much grander scale. He has come to reconcile us to the Father, but remember how Jesus speaks of one who is an adversary. The one whose reason for being is to steal, kill, and destroy. How the Apostle Paul will tell us that our primary battle is not against flesh and blood, but against things that we cannot see but are no less real. Jesus has come to exert his authority against forces for which we can scarcely imagine. And we don't even really need to. We just need to trust him that that's at work. Flannery O'Connor, author, died in an early age of lupus. She wrote in a letter to a friend, she said this, our salvation is played out with the devil. A devil who is not simply generalized evil, but an intelligence determined on its own supremacy. We always have to be humble about what it means to think about that world. Sometimes we can try to fill in gaps that the Bible leaves and we should just prefer to be silent when it is silent. But at least we know this, he's come to do battle there too. And so we can imagine why that would send him to his knees. We're meant to behold his heart for what he's grappling with in that particular moment, which is entirely to our benefit. But at the same time we consider that his heart in that moment, we also need to realize that his heart is on display for us as a model. He is acting on our behalf, but he is also showing us what it means to have a heart that follows the Lord. And again, let's just listen to the prayer again. Abba, Father. He's reflecting a kind of intimacy that we're to have with God such that 
yes, it is proper to be silent before him as we are silent before lightning and thunder stilled by the magnitude of what we are hearing as you heard in the sketch. But we're also to believe that we know this God who, whose face, if you will, might be looked at, but not a face of scorn, not a scowling face, a face of welcome, a face of warmth. Do we think of him in that way? Or do we only think of the Lord as stern? We're meant to see Jesus' heart to remind us that this is how it means to relate to the Father. Abba, Father, a term of endearment. But when he says, with you all things are possible, he's talking about a kind of inner trust, a poise. It's not a naivete. It's, it's not a, things are going just smashing right now. It's not a, this is the best of all possible worlds. He's saying, though it may be awful, though it may be tragic, though it may be difficult, it is not only awful or tragic or difficult. There are things, other things that are also true, and that gives him trust that all things with God are possible. I've told you this story before. There was an ethicist by the name of Peter Kavanaugh who many years ago traveled to Calcutta, India to visit Mother Teresa because he perceived in her an astonishing capacity to serve in the midst of the, of the hovels and, and of the, the homeless places where children had no one. And, and he went to her, and, and of all things, after wandering with her for, for days just to see how she did her work caring for the lowest of the lowest, the outcast of that society, he said, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me to have clarity about what to do next. I'm in the middle of a difficult time. I need you to pray for clarity. And Mother Teresa says this wonderful thing to her. She says, no, <laughs> I'm not going to pray for you that. Clarity, she says, is the last thing you are clinging to and you must let go of it. I've never had clarity. What I have had always is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. You can ask for clarity. It's fine. <laughs> But what we really need is trust in the midst of utter fog, of utter chaos. That's the heart. When Jesus says, remove the cup, we were reminded of the fact, according to the biblical scholars, that Jesus is never, this is, it was never a bait and switch for Jesus. It was never like, here I am, I'm come to save the day. And then God then says the little memo, okay, oh yeah, by the way, forgot to mention Jesus was in on the plan from the beginning. Everything he did was voluntary. He was not coerced into this work. But when he says remove the cup, he's, he's just wondering, is there an alternative? Might there be a plan B? He's expressing his anguish. He knows what's coming, and he's not detached from it. And he just wonders, is there another way? You know what that kind of heart is? It's an honest heart. It's honest in facing life in extreme. And you and I should feel the same freedom as he did, as the psalmist do. How long? Have you abandoned me? Where are you? 
he's being a model for us about what kind of heart he intends for us. But, but that last line, not my will, but yours be done. He's shown us the heart of intimacy. He's shown us a heart of trust. He's shown us a heart of, of honesty, but he's also showing us a heart of submission. He knows this is the way. This is the only way. And what's true of him is true of us, even if it's on an infinitesimally smaller scale. There will be moments, friends, kids, listen up. There will be moments when what you want to do and what he wants you to do will be different. There will be some stuff that you prefer and other things that you know he would have you do instead. And the heart that he wants us to have is to be able to acknowledge the stuff that we might prefer, but to set it aside. And instead to walk as he's called us to. That's the heart he intends for us. We have to behold his heart. That's what Mark wants us to do. That's why he spends so much time describing for us not just that Jesus suffered, but how. We have to behold his heart. But at the same time that we behold his, we're also supposed to be wearing, being wary of something else. We have to beware our own hearts. Uh, you walk up to a gate and it says, beware of dog. <laughs> That's a cue. That thing that might look absolutely adorable behind the fence, left to its own devices, can wreak havoc. If you walk into a laboratory and you see the refrigerator and vials marked hazardous, there's a cue. Maybe you shouldn't dabble in things that you're not familiar with. There's danger there. You should beware it. And Jesus is asking to beware our hearts. And where, where am I getting that? Jesus, in the midst of his anguish, he gets up, he breaks off, he goes back to Peter, James, and John, and, and what does he discover when he happens upon them? They're asleep. And, and Jesus says, Simon, are, are you asleep? Now look, to their credit, it's night. Weary, confusing, they're beset. They've just been told that one of them is going to betray him. Sometimes when you have too much input, what's the first thing you do? I think I'm going to take a nap. But their rabbi, their friend, who is distressed and beset and has gone off further in the distance and fallen on his face, all of that notwithstanding, it's too much. They go to sleep. And again, when it comes to storytelling, why does Mark go to great lengths to explain to us that Jesus, on three separate occasions, gets up and goes and finds them asleep again. Third time? Really? What it's getting at is to not just preserve the record, but to expose something that's already within our heart that's the default mode of our heart. Jesus, in that moment, is showing Peter is kind of the poster boy for the human condition. 
that the life of following Jesus is often an uphill climb. It doesn't come naturally. There are plenty of things that conspire against you. But the reason it is often an uphill climb is because not only of what is outside of you that conspires against you to walk in his way, but of what is already within you, the silt that lies within, that the storm churns up and you discover, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought because of who I am. And so Jesus gets straight to the heart of the matter. Do you know what the heart is? Here's the problem with the heart. Verse 38. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of that verse, which is a wonderful paraphrase, I love it. He says this. Don't be naive. Part of you is eager, ready for anything in God, but another part is as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. That's me. That's you. We are those where our hearts, their default position is to go to sleep, to be dull and insensible and unresponsive as much as somebody who's in REM stage and snoring and sawing logs. Our heart's true condition is to go to sleep spiritually to default to the world in which we become functional atheists. And the thing about somebody who's asleep is that uh, not only are they not aware of stuff, they are totally vulnerable to whatever might be coming their way. What? Like, the best time to seize upon somebody is when they're sleeping, right? You're vulnerable. You're incapable of defending yourself. And you're really not very helpful to anybody in that moment except for your own rejuvenation. That's the condition of somebody in sleep. That's the condition of a heart that is at sleep. And what we have to realize is that something has to revive us. If that's our default mode, to walk in a way that essentially becomes insensible to anything that he's about and anything about his reality, then then something has to awaken us. There was a Welsh preacher of the 18th century. His name was William Williams. Not a hard name to forget. William Williams. And in the time of revival in, in the 18th century in Wales, he, he composed several questions that he invited people to consider and to discuss among themselves. Questions that were out to awaken them to reality. And I'm going to just share a few of them that are in paraphrase. And at first you might hear me ask these questions as if, as if they're questions about your performance. You know, um, you, you, every, every, whenever it is, spring, the NFL combine, right? They bring all the prospective draftees. And what do they do? They bring out their stopwatches and they, and they, they time their 40-yard dash. And then they have that thing, whatever it's called, right? And they jump and they see what their vertical leap can be. And every one of those is a question to get answered. How well can they do? Those are performance questions. These questions are not those kinds of questions. These are diagnostic questions. These are questions like what a doctor or a counselor would ask you, not to shame you and not to leer at you, but to awaken you to certain realities. And three of the questions that that William Williams composed that he encouraged people to reflect on and to ask among themselves, here's three. One, how real is your sense of God and his holiness this week? 
is that even a thing for you? Is it a category? Does that ever cross your mind in any way? How real is that to you? The second one was this. Are you conscious of the reality of sin and of your capacity for it? Is sin just a throwback to an earlier day that we didn't have better words for and now that we know all this about neuroscience and Freud and everything that my mother did to me, you know, is sin just kind of a, a shorthand for something that no longer exists? Or is it, are we sense of it? Do we, do we really have a sense that there is something broken and corrupt that when we let it out, we are like the dog that might smile at you and then bite you? But, but less those first two questions don't, you know, send you into a spiraling kind of scrupulosity where you begin to think, I'm just terrible. Here's the third question. How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? They're diagnostic questions. They are things that are not meant to sort of, you know, check boxes and put you on a spectrum and, you know, grade you at the end. They're, they're really to ask you, what's going on? What do you think? Because if our natural proclivity, if our default position is for all of these things to feel about 10,000 miles away, then it's those kinds of questions that begin to provoke us, to begin to help us entertain ideas that maybe we need to recover. We have to beware our hearts. Their capacity to lose sight of even the fundamentals. But I know even as you hear those questions, and even as I hear those questions, there's part of us like, ah, where do I start? That's my last thing I want to talk to you about. Because I think not only is this text asking us to behold the heart of Jesus and to beware our own hearts, it's asking us to consider how those two words go together. Behold and beware. The most explicit instruction of this passage comes there in verse 38. Right, at, right before Jesus has said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, it says, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. It's a funny thing to tell Peter. What, look, in the moment, um, when he says watch and pray, Jesus is asking Peter and his homeboys to kind of be a sentry. Like, somebody's coming. I need you to be a lookout. Let me know. <laughs> Let me know when they're approaching. Be a sentry. But at the same time, be a support to me. Pray for me. But the words that Jesus says to Peter in that moment is actually words that he's speaking to you and to me. Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. He's talking about us putting a sentry upon our own heart. Somebody who's on the lookout for what's going on here to be aware, to ask ourselves some questions like, why are you so sullen? Why does rage seem to be really at your fingertips? Why does despair and, and wintriness of soul seem to be sort of your denominator? You know, in the same way that our bodies sometimes try to send off signals, you know, we neglect our bodies long enough and at some point they say, you are, hello? Our hearts can do that too. And we have to be mindful of them. In the same way that our bodies send us signals, so our hearts do too. And we have to watch. 
We have to ask ourselves, what's going on there? But at the same time that we are called to have a century upon our heart, that is pointless and fruitless without the second part of Jesus' instruction. Watch and pray. Be aware. Talk to me. What is prayer? It's it's the focusing of the mind and the gathering of the thoughts and the voicing of the words to acknowledge our heart, to ask for his assistance. That's, that's what praying does. If, if you want to reawaken your sense of the holiness of God as reality or the, or the seriousness of sin and your capacity for it or, or even the, the, the truth of God's fatherly grace in the gospel in Jesus who goes to his cross for our sake to reconcile us to the Father and deliver us from the hands of the devil. It's got to be more than just reading or listening to me flap my gums. There has to be a place for reflection. There has to be a place for praying in which you focus your mind and gather your words and acknowledge your heart and ask for his assistance, even with stammering, even in 30-second spouts. And as soon as I say that to you, as soon as I say that to me, there's probably part of you that goes, I stink at prayer. You know who else thought that of themselves? Flannery O'Connor. Several years ago, a a journal of her prayers were published. She'd probably be scandalized at that. But she said in her journal, in a prayer to the Father, she says, Dear God, I, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Please help me to push myself aside. Please help me to get down under things and find where you are. My attention is always very fugitive the way I have it every instant. But I can feel a warmth of love heeding me when I think and write this to you. You hear her struggle, but you hear her understanding of what it means to cry out to him, and you hear even in the struggle to keep her attention on him that there's this belief and there's this sense in which she focuses her mind and gives herself to it that there is something that happens. Look, in the implication of her prayer, it's this. She knows that God calls her to it. She knows that she needs of it. And she also knows that she struggles with it. But for her to write those words to the Lord, knowing full well that she is no exemplar, no model of what it means to pray, she knows that the Lord does not give up on her. And that's what I think that this passage is asking us to behold. We beware our hearts. By beholding his heart. And what do we see of his heart in this moment? These ones who had followed him for however many years, who are now asleep at the wheel in his darkest hour, and who will in a few hours abandon him in the darkness, he does not wash his hands of them. He does not give up on them. He does not cut them loose. He had every right in that moment to think, this is a waste of time. It's not affecting you. He still goes to his cross. For us to really beware our own hearts, it is not to fixate alone upon their condition. It's part. 
but it is mostly simply to see what manner of love the Father has given to us in Jesus. How do you do that? That might, like the word behold, like I know. <laughs> behold! Who talks like that? Um, the Bible and advertisements about, I don't know, deodorant. <laughs> behold! You know what beholding is? It's not complicated, and you already know how. You just don't use that word. You know that gallery out there? The wisdom of this church that decided, we want a gallery. You know what that wisdom knew? One, that beauty is at the heart of worship. That to understand the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to understand that unless we are captivated by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we don't get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are captivated by that which we find beautiful, and beauty is that thing. That's one reason there was wisdom. The second reason is that art is the last common language that we share with people across spectra. You can be on the entirely opposite end, ideologically, politically, whatever it might be, and if you can talk about a film, watch the eyes light up. Watch the ability to talk at length about something that you finally find common cause with, even though you despise each other about everything else. The wisdom that put that gallery together knew that it was coming. But the last reason is this. That gallery is its own spiritual discipline. To honor it in the way that's intended, you don't just walk through there and go, nice, 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 let's out. You have to sit and stare at Ms. Cayuta's stuff with the assumption that there is more there than you can notice in two seconds. You have to come to those paintings with the assumption that there might be something more for you and something far more splendid that you might ever encounter than what eight seconds of attention can give. Friends, it's the same way with beholding Jesus. Unless you are willing to stop and stare and assume that there is more to himself and his person than what giving your fleeting fugitive attention will provide you, then you're right. The holiness of God will seem fleeting and your capacity for sin will just feel like, I don't know, indigestion. And the possibility that there is grace for you even if you have wasted everything will feel like a pipe dream that's devoted to fantasy tales but not that's real. You and I have to learn to see him, to behold him in the same way that that art gallery asks you to behold the art within it. That's the instruction. That's the takeaway. And that's why we come to the table. See what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That he laid down his life for his friends. And then he went to a cross to reconcile, to deliver, and to provide for us an inheritance that will neither rust nor fade. This is the news we cling to. This is the news we need. Let's pray. We come to the table because we need to see you, because our eyes are dim, our hearts are frail, our courage is fleeting. Would you help us to behold your heart, to beware our own, knowing full well that you delight in this heart and mean to make it your own? And would you help us not to simply grow cold at what we see as a deficiency within it, but to see yours and somehow in seeing yours, see some of the scales fall from our eyes. We ask it in his name. Amen.